Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to the New Books Network. We are here today to discuss with Shu Yong Son, Associate Professor at Cornell University, her book, Writing for Print, Publishing and the Making of Textual Authority in Late Imperial China, published by Harvard University Press in 2018. Writing for Print is a fascinating book which travels us to the publishing practices of 17th century Chinese writers. During that period, there has been a surge in publishing, which is conventionally attributed to technological breakthroughs and especially the invention of woodblock printing. However, as Xu Yong Song highlights, woodblock printing technology is not enough per se to explain this surge in publishing. In her book, she asks why 17th century writers showed such an unprecedented passion for publishing their works marking a shift from earlier practices whereby writers were only published posthumously, with publishing being only a posthumous token of prestige for the author. Su Yong-Song describes these novel publishing practices as contradictory, given the writer's ambivalent feelings towards the technological printing breakthrough. Contradictory because the print's capability for high production could lead to the circulation of texts of unchecked quality. Thus, writers had conflicting expectations towards the print medium. At once, writers used it to target a small, exclusive readership, consisting of one's chosen coterie and peer recognition, and yet writers also strove to attain the broadest possible circulation in the commercial market and secure fame, economic gain, and social influence. Hence, their ambivalence between exclusive cultural prestige and broad popular appeal. Dilemmas that still resonate today, if I'm allowed to remark, and one can only think of the quality we tend to attribute to bestsellers list. This book is also fascinating in revolutionizing our ideas about the notions of text, book, author, reader, and the relationships among them. Books in 17th century China were not exactly what we think today of books. That is, a book written by a distinguishable author centered on a particular subject. Book copies were not identical and comprised a lot more voices than the author, assuming that it is even possible to speak of an author in these published prints. Moreover, the content of the 17th century printed text can be quite surprising, variable and versatile. It ranges from anthologies and poetry games to collections of drinking games, riddles, game manuals, drama and popular songs, daily encyclopedias, texts on Buddhism and Taoism, collections of examination essays. The titles can also surprise us, like the title of the collection of vernacular stories, and apologies for my pronunciation, Pai and Ting Ti Slap the Table in Amazement, or the piece Tiege Hua Wen, Precaution Against the Plighting of Flowers. The book is also a daunting research exercise given the vast editions and variations of the printed text. As Shu Yong Son writes in her acknowledgments, when she first opened the first of the six volumes of Zhang Chao's collected letters, she did not anticipate that this moment would trigger a long, arduous yet exciting journey across libraries in China, Taiwan, Hong Kong, Japan, Korea, and the United States. Su Yong Song, I would like to welcome you to the podcast, and thank you very much for making the time to discuss with us your fascinating book, Writing for Print. Let me start with the first traditional question at the New Books Network. What led you to Asian studies and the 17th century publishing practices of writers in China in particular? Thank you so much for having me, Aliki. I'm so delighted to have a chance to talk about my book. I was born and grew up in Korea 
and educated in Korea, China, and the United States. When I was young, I learned Chinese calligraphy. I had a great teacher, but I also loved everything about writing calligraphy. I still vividly remember the smell of ink grinding the inkstone and the spreading strokes on the paper in the classroom. This good memory led me to fall in love with Chinese characters and to major in traditional Chinese literature when I entered college. I have been always interested in looking at the text, not merely as an aesthetic artifact, but as a medium of social and cultural practice acting upon wide social conditions. I thought that the publishing practice served as an important intermediary for making the inseparable relationship between text production and reception. This was partly from my own experience. I worked as an assistant editor for a small academic publisher as a part-time job, and I observed how much publishing it played an important role in mediating the transition between the text in abstract and the book in the physical copy. Another reason I became interested in publishing was the concern about the medium of print. When I started graduate school, there were debates about the rise of digital text and how the change from the paper copy of the book to the digital format had transformed our way of reading and learning. This sounds so old-fashioned now, but I remember that there are many negative responses to the online form of text, like digital text encouraged coarser reading, do not make students engage in close and intensive reading or something like that. I thought it was really fascinating to see that almost similar debates had occurred in 17th century China, particularly among the literati who had traditionally relied on manuscripts, but they also saw the rise of printed books and the book market. They didn't wholly welcome the advance of print as a new technology of text production, but could not deny the new opportunities that the newly accessible medium of print and commercial book market brought about. So this shaped the main question of my research. In this book, instead of how the new medium of print replaced the old traditional manuscript and achieved its predominance, I'm more interested in exploring the question of how the print medium positioned itself in the relationship with the existing practices of the manuscript tradition and participated in the redistribution of power in establishing textual authority among the peer community, commercial market, and imperial authority. That's great. Thank you very much for uh, sharing with our audience uh, your trajectory and your interest that led you to writing this book. So my next question would be that from your acknowledgement, I understand that this book originated in your doctoral dissertation. Can you tell us a bit about the process of turning the dissertation into a book? If you had to rethink the structure, your argument, your audience, and what did you learn from this exercise of transforming the dissertation into a book? I guess everybody has a very different process for making a dissertation into a book form. In my case, I initially thought that I had some concrete structure in my dissertation and have finished most of my archival research. So converting the dissertation into book form would be easy. Of course, I was totally wrong. I needed to delete some parts and add a new chapter based on the supplementary research and articulate some incipient arguments. But what I felt was most difficult was to write the introduction and conclusion. I rewrote them a lot and consequently had a number of different versions of the introduction and conclusion. This rewriting process made me help to integrate my arguments in each chapter into a consistent whole and foreground my overarching questions. More important, I needed to think about the implications of my argument beyond the specialized topic of 17th century Chinese publishing practice and extend it to the larger questions of rethinking the relationship between the medium and literary production and how it redefined the relationship of the text to its author and reader. When I was a graduate student, 
Professor Shigehisa Kuriyama, he teaches the history of science of Japan at Harvard. Then he came to visit and had lunch with the graduate students. One thing I remember about the conversation with him is that a good dissertation is not one that provides a definitive answer. A good dissertation presents a good question to facilitate further questions. I agree with him. I'm not sure how successful my book is for my readers, but for me at least, finishing this book gives me more questions that I wanted to pursue in my next project. Thank you very much for your answer. And I mean, being myself in the process of writing a dissertation, I definitely agree with the putting a question that would lead to further questions. And that was exactly my sentiment by finishing your book, that it actually sprung to my mind a lot more questions that it would be fascinating to explore. So I think uh, that was uh, very successful. So my third question, it's also a bit introductory, but the research for this book seems to have been a very daunting enterprise requiring a lot of orchestration of archival material among variable and non-identical copies of printed books, as you will explain further uh, when you talk to us about your first chapter, of huge volumes of anthologies and collected, uh, collated printed texts. So can you tell us a bit on how you managed to navigate and orient yourself amid such a diverse archive? What were the biggest challenges for you? Which were your navigated compasses given that our contemporary notions of original editions or authors as organizing units appear not that relevant or determining in 17th century China's intellectual milieu. So as you mentioned in your introduction, my research began with the reading the six volumes of Zhang Chao's letter collections. One half of the collection is the collection of the letters Zhang Chao's friends sent to him and the other half is the collection of Zhang Chao's replies to them. It was a pretty random collection with no table of contents, no index, and no dates. And all the writers' names were written in how their style names. So it required some detective work in the beginning. I need to identify who wrote the letters to whom, sort out which letter replied to which letter, and also to establish the order of the correspondence to track down the progress of the publishing they mentioned. The letters in the collection mention a number of Zhang Chao's books, and some books still remain, whereas some of them have not survived. Because there is no complete list of Zhang Chao's publications and no extensive bibliographical study about them, I just thought that I wanted to check out his printed copies in the libraries at first. But I soon realized that it was not as easy as I expected because there were many copies of the same edition and the copies were all different. Following the distinction of the traditional bibliographic and textual studies called Banbenshue, one edition is distinguished from another, usually by the date of publication, the size and the shape of the woodblocks and the publisher, which is based on the assumption that the copies of one edition are all identical. But I found out that Zhang Chao's printed copies, despite having been catalogued as the same edition in the modern library, often differed in their order and number of extra textual materials such as prophecies and postscripts, commentaries, and sometimes even the main text itself. It clearly exemplifies the flexibility of the printing process in the 17th century, which is radically different from our modern experience of industrial book production. We assume that once the text was printed, it was final, complete, and standardized. But contrary to this, Zhang Chao's printed copy was not often identical to any other copy. This means that, as I explained in the chapter one, he continuously added corrections, additions, and alterations to woodblocks and printed copies from them whenever he made changes. This is the reason why many different impressions of one edition remain. So one of the difficulties that I encountered in conducting archival research 
was to persuade librarians to show me all the extant copies because they couldn't understand why I needed to see all the copies which belonged to the same edition. This made me reconsider our assumption behind bibliographical and textual studies practice. We often distinguish between the original first edition and the revised reprint and establish a hierarchy among different copies to decide on the definitive edition, so-called shanbun. But when you look at Zhang Chao's printed copies, it is not clear which copy is better than the others. Is it the first printed copy? Or is it the last one which appends all the changes and comments? I think that the continuous printing and reprinting process in Zhang Chao's publishing practice ask us to redirect our focus from the purity and originality of text, which has been so treasured by bibliographical and textual studies, to the process of making the book, that is, to consider the multiple impressions of the edition, not as secondary textual derivatives, but as equally important chapters of the book's life. This is really fascinating, and thank you very much for providing us this explanation. So going now directly to the main uh, body of your book, as you explain in your introduction on the structure of your book, the book is divided into two parts by its historical frame. Part one has three chapters, which explore the production, circulation, and reception of the imprints published by Zhang Chao and Bang Zhou and their amendment of manuscript and print culture in the 17th century. And then part two has two chapters which examine the response to the imprints of Zhang Chao and Wang Zhou in the 18th century, focusing on the ways in which censorship in 18th century Qing China and Choshan Korea, again, sorry for my pronunciation respectively, dealt <laughs> dealt with the ramifications of the literary publishing in the 17th century. So, before delving into the chapters, could you explain for our readers why, in order to approach publishing practices of writers in 17th century China, did you choose to focus on these particular two figures, Zhang Chao and Wang Zhuo, and why, in general, you chose to approach uh, 17th century publishing practices through this particular structure, that is, two central figures, and then the material and economic and commercial aspects of printings, followed by two chapters on censorship. Why did you, what did you expect to find by choosing these particular vectors? So the most obvious reason that I chose Zhang Chao is that I started my research with his letter collections. One of the frequent difficulties in researching 17th century publishing practices is that there is not much concrete information about the publishing process left. But Zhang Chao's letter collections contain very concrete and vivid information about how he collected the manuscript for publishing, how he revised and edited, how he secured the budget, and how he negotiated the sale of his books and divided the profits with commercial booksellers. And Wang Zhuo is one of the most important collaborators with Zhang Chao's publishing projects. As I explained in Chapter 3, although they lived in different cities, the Zhang Chao lived in Yangzhou and then Wang Zhuo lived in Hangzhou, but they co-edited and co-published the huge size compilations together, although during the collaboration they fought over who could claim more credit for which books. In many ways, I see their collaborative publishing practice as embodying the general pattern of making the printed books of the literati in the 17th century. I often got the question how much we can generalize from Zhang Chao and Wang Zhou's publishing practice and their reception, and then how much they are exceptional. Zhang Chao's letter collections gathered together more than 1,000 letters from more than 300 literati from diverse reasons. And as far as I have tracked down some of their publications and publishing practices, I can say that Zhang Chao and Wang Zhou's publishing practice was not peculiar, but pretty typical and common in the 17th century. If I can say one unusual thing about them, it is that 
they were eager to make records about their publishing in their letters and preserve some of them in print. Thank you very much for this explanation. And again, 1,000 letters and the research for your book is uh, amazing. Uh, so turning now concretely to chapter one, which focuses on Zhang Chao and his production of the printed text. Could you tell us a bit more on the trajectory of Zhang Chao, his circle of coterie and his practice of gaining prestige and recognition among the literati circles? Moreover, could you also expound on what the collective process of publishing entailed, and in particular, the nine stages thereof that you identify? And possibly, if you can also refer here to the text making of Yu Ying, which is the text you selected as precisely exemplifying the versatility of the printing process. It is a part of the book that personally I found fascinating in that it really illustrates what concretely and materially meant to publish a book in 17th century China. And in particular, on how you describe the human being as challenging the conception of the text as a unified, consistent whole in which an author takes a central position and controlling textual meaning. As you write, and I like the imaginary that this uh, phrase involves, human being is a kinetic and performative composition of a conversational atmosphere interweaving text and commentary, and you proceed to cite the example of the entry on planting flowers as a perfect illustration thereof. I admit that this is a rather long question, but it really helps us to enter into the 17th publishing environment and understand the stakes of writing for print. Thank you for the question. As you can point out, the main argument for this chapter one is to show 17th century literary publishing was an open, collective, and social enterprise. Zhang Chao showed precocious talent, but he couldn't advance past the initial level of the civil service examination and failed to obtain any official post for his whole life. Instead, he involved himself in publishing. He published more than 40 titles of many different genres of books, and each book had a different process of publishing. In chapter 1, I particularly focus on the collection of Zhang Chao's aphorisms and maxims called Yomengning, which is translated as Faint Dream Shadows. This book was one of the most typical enterprises showing the characteristics of Zhang Chao's publishing in many ways. First, it clearly shows that Printing was not the final stage of his text production. As I explained in the chapter, after he did the printing, he sent out the printed copies to his friends. And his friends added comments to the printed copy, and Zhang Chao incorporated them and printed the book again. And he sent this to his other friends, and his friends also inserted their comments and sent it back to him again. Then the whole circular process was repeated. Instead of delimiting and finalizing the text, his printing was an integral part of the very process of creating the text of Yomengin. What is also interesting is that Zhang Chao himself had expected this circular process and left enough space empty on his original woodblock to incorporate the reader's additions. This means that he was not so much interested in taking full control of completing his text. Instead, he seems to have enjoyed the responses, auditions, and corrections from his friends as much as we enjoy the tweets and replies from our social media. Instead of being made through an individual and isolated process, Zhang Chou's book was formed over time as the product of an interactive and interdependent relationship between him and his readers, with constantly recreating textual meanings in tandem with them. I think that the convergence of text making and printing in Zhang Chao's textual practice asks us to reconsider our modern notion of the text and the author. Most modern reprints of Yomengin only contain the entries of Zhang Chao, dropping the commentaries by his friends because, according to our perceived notion of the author, Zhang Chao was the one who made the text, and his intention is the most important in the interpretation of the text. 
But considering the text-making process of the 17th century, the meaning of Yomengning lies not merely in the original text composed by Zhang Chao and his intention, but also in the interactive sociality and conversation between him and his friends. That is, what made his text variable was not a hierarchical reality from the author to the readers, but a simultaneous organic convergence of writing, reading, commenting, and printing that proceeded in a spiral fashion. One thing I also emphasize in this chapter, though, is that this interactive and social process of making and printing the text was not open to everybody. Zhang Chao's printed copies were first circulated exclusively within Zhang Chao's coterie, not a random cross-section of readers. Zhang Chao initially printed about 60 or 70 copies, enough to distribute among his immediate circle of friends for free. He then stored the woodblocks in his home for printing on demand, or sent his woodblocks to the commercial print shop, so readers who didn't have any connection with Zhang Chao or his friends had to go to the print shop and pay money to have their copy printed. Zhang Chao's strategy of custom printing and highly controlled distribution in this way granted cultural prestige to the members of his coterie because they shared a sense of privilege by being close to Zhang Chao and hence a part of a select community that was distinct from the larger reading public. And of course, the cultural prerogative attached to the Zhang Chao's printed books derived from his endeavor to position himself favorably within an economy of prestige, which was increasingly undermined by the wide accessibility of print and the competitive book market in the 17th century. Thank you for your answer. So we already see a bit the contradictions, how they start to emerge and how the control from the author was the bigger community. So turning then to chapter two, you focus on the second protagonist figure of your book, Wang Zhou, who gives us a somewhat different angle of the publishing practices, given his coming from a less privileged background than Zhang Chao. In the chapter, amid other section, you have this Provocative title and of much interest to many of our listeners, researchers, and aspiring writers on how to establish a reputation by publishing. Could you tell us a bit about Wang Zhuo's innovative strategies to gain literary peer recognition? So Wang Zhuo and his family could not claim any scholarly pedigree, unlike Zhang Chao, whose father had earned the highest degree in the civil service examination. But Wang Zhou was involved in publishing many books, and his extensive experience in publishing was the main reason Zhang Shao proposed a collaboration with him when he first launched his publishing career. But unlike Zhang Chao, most of Wang Zhou's publishing projects were the printing of his own writing collections. That is, Zhang Chao could mobilize several networks across his family, local, and literary community for his publishing projects, whereas Wang Zhuo mainly used publishing to make a reputation for himself and establish his status in the literary community. Wang Zhuo's self-publishing, however, encountered a dilemma. Although self-publishing was becoming a widespread practice in the 17th century, it was still ridiculed as self-promotion. It went against the prevailing belief that only a text of exceptional quality deserved to be put into print. But at the same time, publishing emerged as a major means of establishing a reputation for the retratus like Wang Zhuo, who didn't have any external token of his status to claim in the elite community. That is, Wang Zhuo needed to justify his self-publishing by mobilizing the endorsement of his literary community in the form of prophecies, commentaries, and postscripts, because he knew that peer recognition was traditionally an important way to establish one's reputation. But how Wang Zhou's endeavor was radically different from the previous period is that the order was reversed. Before, the writer gained enough reputation through their peer community to become qualified to have their work in print. But in Wang Zhou's case, he published his work first 
and incorporated the peer endorsement in his book later, so that he could justify his self-publishing and have the quality of his works acknowledged. This process led me to think about the nature of textual production and circulation in the 17th century. First, literary production was not merely an aesthetic endeavor of writer's singularity, but also performative social practice to make a powerful impact on establishing status and earning cultural capital. For example, Xi Hua Ba, the recompense for cherishing flowers, the drama by the eminent royalist writer of the 17th century, Huang Zhuxing, has been previously perceived as a plain run-of-mill work expressing his religious or political aspirations. But my readings of the letters and books of Wang Zhu clearly indicate that Huang Zhuxing's drama was initiated by the request of Wang Zhu and was specifically based on Wang Zhu's prose, Kanhua Shuizi, Record of the Watching of Flowers and the Telling of the Odd. That is, Huang Zhuxing's drama gains its full meaning when it is located in the condition of its production, not as a solitary and individual self-expression of Huang Zhuxing, but a performative practice of sociality between Huang Zhuxing and Wang Zhuo for garnering and securing peer recognition. Another point I wanted to point out is that Wang Zhuo's publishing for reputation raises the important issue of who decided the literary quality of the work that deserved publication. It seems that Wang Zhuo's publishing practice acknowledged the centrality of peer recognition in establishing textual authority. But at the same time, it clearly demonstrates that peer patronage could be easily mobilized and manipulated as was shown in Wang Zhou's case, particularly in the 17th century, when the diversification and stratification of the literary community accelerated. How could the peer recognition of one specific literary community be a reliable barometer for the quality of the text? Ironically, Wang Zhou's eager quest for peer recognition in his publishing practice clearly reveals that the traditional peer patronage was increasingly challenged and destabilized by the changes in social conditions, such as the expansion of the commercial book market. Thank you very much for your answer and for making us so alive for us, this environment of uh, a performative circulation and practice of the text. So in chapter three, you turn to examine the economics of print and especially the dynamics of the intersection between money and reputation, recognition, and profit. Here, we learn a lot about the financing of private publishing, an area which is still something of a taboo since, as you write, and one could still call it today uh, in certain circles, that the public denials and denunciations of any financial incentive contribute to the image of literary publishing as a purely academic or literary endeavor incompatible with market demand. In this chapter, Zhang Chao and Wang Zhou meet, and through this encounter, broader questions emerge, like the dispute over editorship, questions of authorship, and the order of appearance of names. Can you explain to us what these disputes entailed and revealed for the 17th century publishing milieu? Which roles were considered more prestigious among literati? Moreover, you also address in this chapter the collaboration of Zhang Chao with commercial bookshops. Could you tell us how the ambivalence of elite taste versus market appeal played out in this instance? So chapter 3 aims to challenge the predominant perception that commercial motives compromise a purely academic or literary endeavor. Actually, many writers in the 17th century publicly denied any commercial incentive for their literary production, including Zhang Chao himself. And scholars open, have often taken this at face value. But I think it is important to make a distinction between public gesture and actual practice in the literary production and circulation. When I look at Zhang Chao's publishing practices, money was in fact a prominent concern because publishing cost a lot. Zhang Chao constantly worried about covering the budget and paper cost and how to work with commercial bookshops in selling the copies and dividing the profits. What I found is that in the 17th century, 
the book market was no longer a discrete realm that individual writers might choose to enter or not out of concern for moral condemnation. Instead, the book market had become an indispensable everyday condition in which the printed book was created and circulated, and Zhang Chao had to accommodate and negotiate with the market rules of transactions. The letters exchanged between Zhang Chao and Wang Zhuo during their dispute over editorship looked like a common correspondence at first. But when you read all the trails of their exchanges, you notice some intense tension couched in the polite expressions. They argued over whose name should be printed first. It sounds like a trivial matter, but actually there had been a tacit convention that the person whose name was printed first was the one who made a major intellectual contribution. And the following person would be considered to have had a mere supplementary role or be a financial sponsor. Zhang Chao and Wang Zhou were clearly aware of the division of the credit in publishing the book, and they deeply cared about who deserved to claim which capital, symbolic or financial. Actually, Zhang Chao also had another dispute with a fellow publisher, about which I wrote a book chapter included in the edited volume called a history of Chinese letters and epistolary culture. During this dispute, Zhang Chao made a very clear distinction between intellectual contribution and financial investment in publishing the book. He argued that the author's intellectual contribution was supposed to be compensated by symbolic and incorporeal capital, such as reputation, status, and cultural influence, whereas the printer needed to be compensated by financial rewards because he put in the material investment money to make the physical woodblocks from which the copies were printed. Of course, the symbolic and financial gains from the printed book were open hard to separate, but at least Zhang Chao acknowledged his claiming of both symbolic and financial compensation was important to him as a leading cultural leader and also as a successful publisher. To attain this seemingly incompatible goal of cultural prestige and popularity and money, Zhang Chao took several strategies, such as selective distribution, as I explained before. He tried to attach the aura of elite prestige to the compilations he made, so that readers could pride themselves on being closer to it by purchasing his book. In this respect, his publishing revises our perception that commercialization inevitably entailed popularization for wider consumption. Instead, his books appeal to the highest stratum of supply and demand in the market, a stratum that was formed by the prestige built by the sociability of exclusive elites, and in turn, their overall culture and social prestige accrued popularity and high market value. But one fascinating thing is that Zhang Chao and Wang Zhou were clearly aware that the high market value of the book could also be translated as the credentials verifying the cultural eminence and social influence of their printed book. As I briefly explained in the conclusion, some of Zhang Chao's friends, such as Jiang Zhiran, who published some medical books, even argue that the value of the book would be demonstrated by how well it sells. The commercial value of the book thus emerged as an important arbiter in the making of textual value in light of the increasingly destabilized efficacy of cautery patronage gained by the exclusive literary community. So I argue that the 17th century saw a wide variety of different attitudes toward the market and literary value. Zhang Chao and Wang Zhou believed that as long as they produced a high-quality text endorsed by peer recognition, the book would bring them reputation, broad popularity, and in the end, commercial success. But at the other end of the spectrum, there emerged people like Jiang Zhiran, who believed that commercial success became the ultimate marker for determining the value of the book. Basically, he argued that a best-selling book was a good book. This not only demonstrates the increasing debates about who decided which book was valuable in this period, but also shows that the commercial market emerged an important barometer 
for deciding textual authority, competing with the literary community, and imperial authority. Yeah, thank you very much, because I think that this chapter really shows very vividly the intricacies that we still think about today between market value and the general value or the literary value of the book. And you show precisely how this uh, interplay and it's actually both together a very complex issue that cannot be really separated. So turning to chapter four now, we turn to the second part of the book on the transregional impact of publishing in the 18th century. Chapter four examines the censorship of installment publication in Tsing, China. And after setting out the broader censorship environment of the period, you turn to explore how they concretely played out in the collection of Yu Chu Xinzi, you will pronounce it better, a collection of about 150 classical tales. Could you explain for us how censorship emerged as the state response to literati publishing in the 17th century, how the state tried to regain the position of authority in the competition with the literati community in the commercial book market, and what were the challenges that the practice of installment publication posed to censorship? It is also very interesting here that underpinning censorship was also this belief of the censors that publishing was a sign of the writer's moral degeneration and self-publishing, a case of a writer's self-aggrandizement, coupled with what you mentioned later in this chapter, that the censors felt that the voluntary submission of manuscripts inevitably compromised the quality of installment works. Could you tell us how such moral or quality concerns of the censors played out in connection with the political dimensions at stake? And what was the spectrum of the roles the state eventually sought to play amid the literary communities on the one hand and the commercial market on the other? The central text I discuss in this chapter is Wichu Xinzhi, which is translated as The Magician's New Records, a collection of classical tales. The copies of Mitrisinsu was one of the unexpected findings during my archival research because different copies of the same edition physically have the traces of the 18th century Qianlong censorship. For example, some of the names were blacked out, the works in the middle were deleted, or later copies have had a new table of contents carved that erased the trace of the censorship completely so that later readers did not even know that it was a censored edition. Previous scholars often misunderstood that Wichu Xinzi was censored because it contained some anti-Qing works. But to the contrary, during my archival research, I found out that the examples that the scholars indicate as the work of anti-Qing sentiments were not the ones censored in the 18th century. It made me explore the nature of censorship in this chapter. Previously, Qianlong Emperor's censorship was oversimplified as the state state apparatus to suppress anti-Qing ideas. But I think that this was just merely one dimension of the censorship. Of course, the censorship of the works in Wichu Xinzi was directly related to censorship of Qin Qianyi, whose political trajectory of serving both Ming and then Qing regimes made him publicly renounced as a turncoat. But the censor's comments on the works included in Wichu Xinzi clearly demonstrate that Wichu Xinzi was problematic, not because they were anti-Qing, Ming loyalist writings, but because they were a very typical product of the 17th century publishing practices that Zhang Chao, Wang Zhou, and other literati had done, such as the solicitation of manuscripts from readers, collaboration with commercial bookshops in the circulation and sale of the books, and the inclusion of contemporary works by living writers. In particular, Wichu Xinzhi was an installment publication, which means that the extant 20-volume edition was not a single one-time product, but a collection of separately published installments. Zhang Chou first printed eight volumes of Wichu Xinzi, and after he collected more works from his readers, he added four more volumes and printed 12 volumes of Wichu Xinzi and circulated it. And after that, he added another four more volumes and then printed 16 volumes. And finally, when he felt 
that he was lacking the financial means to continue, he stopped making more installments after 20 volumes of Richard This type of installment publication was a very common publishing practice in the 17th century, but the 18th century censorship problematized this type of publication and censored almost all examples of them and did not include them in the Siku Qianshu, the complete library of the four branches of literature. The scattered comments of the censors strongly denigrated the instrument publication as self-publishing for promoting the reputation of the editor and his coterie, a kind of vanity publishing. But at the same time, they clearly indicate that these instrument publications could not guarantee the quality of the work. It sounds like a repetition of some criticism of self-publishing in the 17th century. But when you take a close look at it, it shows the state's anxiety over the authority of the literary community being enhanced by the collaboration with the commercial book market in deciding the widespread popularity and influence of books. That is, the state was no longer the sole authority deciding which work deserved to be printed for wide transmission. In addition, making instrument publication was very much an open, collective, and fluid process, as in Richard Shinzu's case, depending on the nature of submissions and responses of readers, its meaning could change in the middle. It also made the state concerned because the collective, malleable, and contingent nature inherent in the instrument publication could be easily transformed into a channel of a political communication for the literati at large, as in the case of the Fuxia Restoration Society in the late Ming. So this chapter tries to reconstruct the complexity of 18th century censorship, not only as a means of suppression of political voices, but also as the state's attempt to reinstate its authority in deciding textual value that they felt they were losing in the competition with the literary community and commercial market. Thank you very much. And it's interesting, actually, that through this chapter, you also revealed to us that the state has also other stakes than simply the political ones, like a third player in controlling, actually, the value of the text. So then in the last chapter, chapter five, you turn to censorship in Chosun, Korea, and the transnational circulation of Tanji Kongshu. Here we learn a lot about the circulation of Chinese books into Korea, how Korean missions in Beijing were captivated by the thriving book market in Liu Li Chang and were seeking to purchase large numbers of books during their visit about the concrete networks of book circulation and book brokers. Could you tell us a bit about the reception of Chinese books among Korean social literati, how they influenced the Korean intellectual milieu through the experimentation with new prose styles and topics, the turn to everyday objects and things, and then how this Korean reception of Chinese intellectual works was linked to the censoring by King Chongjo? What was here the perceived threat and broader stakes and how it affected the circulation of printing? When I conceived this, of this project, I did not plan to find a connection with censorship in Joseon, Korea. When I went back to Korea for a break, I just tried to check whether were, there were any Zhangcho's books in Korean libraries. Surprisingly, a quite large number of Zhangcho's books are preserved in Korea and some of them were even the original editions of Zhang Chao that I could not find in libraries in China. It clearly confirms that many of Zhang Chao's books were transmitted to Joseon, Korea before and after the Qianlong censorship and were widely read by the Joseon literati, particularly the ones who lived in Seoul, who had resources and networks to get easy access to the imported books from Qing China. Interestingly, Zhang Chao's books also became a target of 18th century censorship in Joseon, Korea. But those censors' reading of Zhang Chao's books was very different from the one of Qing censors. For example, Tanji Chongshu, the collectania of a sandalwood desk, the collection of many short prose pieces by contemporary writers of Zhang Chao, was mainly criticized as failing to meet 
the rigorous standards of evidential research by the Qing censors, whereas the Joseon King, Zhongzhou, perceived it as a typical example of evidential research, and he felt its expansion of the boundaries of knowledge beyond those of the strict new Confucian model that underpinned his regime would threaten ideological orthodoxy. But Zhongzhou's censorship was closer to a public performance because there was no thorough suppression or destruction of books or serious punishment. It was more like a warning, particularly targeting the Seoul elites who were enthusiastically consuming imported Chinese books, an attempt to confine their reading and writing to the redrawn boundary of state-sanctioned orthodoxy. Like the case of 18th century Qing censorship, 18th century Joseon censorship was also interested not just in the contents of the books itself, but in the discouragement of the private venues of communication among the literary community that could easily diverge from state-sanctioned communication. In short, the examination of 18th century chosen censorship highlights the importance of transregional transmission of books, not only within China, but also across national borders from Qing China to Joseon Korea. This chapter also tries to show that Joseon Korean literary practice cannot be isolated from, but was closely connected to contemporary literary practice in Qing China via transmission of books, objects, and people. Thank you very much for your answer. And it's really amazing to discover the broader implications and the whole network of publishing among countries and regions. So then turning now to your conclusion, you close with reflecting on what this journey through 17th century publishing practices meant for the making of textual authority. You highlight that through your book, you intended to foreground the role of the writers as active agents in shaping print culture that besides the technological breakthrough, it was the literati's deliberate choice of appropriation of the material medium of print. And it was your purpose to show in all its spectrum, including financial, material, social networks, and cultural capital aspects, the intricate interplay between peer patronage and market value in shaping textual authority. Could you tell us what was the most important lesson for you through your research? What, after your delving into such a rich and challenging archive, you came to conclude on the fine balances between literary prestige and market value, private and commercial publishing, what is an author, what is a book and a text, and who had the authority to determine what is publishable in 17th century China? So there are two main arguments I wanted to make in this book. And I started this book with the goal of revising the conception regarding the technological ascendancy of a print medium and its inevitable replacement of manuscript. Although print had a notable new capability of book production in its abundant numbers of available copies, writers also found the widespread dissemination of books of problematic quality was a serious problem that print caused. Instead of perceiving the advance of print as a necessary consequence of its technological breakthrough, writers in the 17th century were keenly aware of both the new possibilities and constraints that the print medium brought about. Throughout this book, I tried to demonstrate how writers of the 17th century appropriated the print medium in the relationship with the manuscript tradition peer patronage and popular fame, and gift exchange and commercial transactions by means of textual production and circulation. By carefully reconstructing their agency in appropriating the print medium, I argue that the impact of print was not merely in the large number of books and wide accessibility, but in initiating debates over what made a piece of writing deserving of a publication and the competition over textual authority among the literary community, the commercial book market, and imperial authority. Another overreaching implication that I suggest throughout this book is how much our conception of text, author, and reader, and the proper relationship among them are overshadowed by the emphasis on authorial intention and textual stability. As I mentioned several times in this interview, 
the author was not the one who was supposed to control all textual meanings. Instead, textual meaning was continuously constructed in the interaction with the diverse creative agency of readers, editors, commentators, preface writers, financial donors, printers, booksellers, and even censors. That is, the meaning of a text were made manifest not only in its finalized form, but also during the fluid and flexible social process through which the text was produced and circulated. And the text was not always fixed as a coherent unity engineered by the author's intention, but was a malleable and evolving entity that was shaped, expanded, and reinterpreted through the participation of readers and finances. In many ways, 17th century literary practice was not an isolated endeavor, but a performative practice of sociality. As Roger Chartier puts it, the printing history of a text raises the need for contextualized reading, which considers the circumstance in which the act of making and circulating texts constituted the major part of the meanings of the text engendered. In this sense, I hope to raise the importance of validating diverse historical forms of textual practice and also raise awareness of the limiting boundaries of our modern notions of text, author, and reader and the need to rethink them, particularly in this era of rapidly changing forms of media and emerging digital textuality. Exactly, and thank you very much. That was among the main reasons that I found your book fascinating. Exactly because of the limiting boundaries, as you just said, that we tend to attach to all the notions of text, author, reader. So thank you for highlighting this for us. So is there any particular element of or aspect of the book that we have not discussed that far and you would like to highlight for our listeners? I would certainly like to emphasize that your book includes an elaborate and detailed appendix with bibliographical notes on exact conditions of Zhang Tao. Could you then maybe tell us a bit more on your appendix? Thank you for asking the question. Actually, the appendix is something I feel the proudest about in my book because this is the product of my several years of archival research in many libraries in China, Hong Kong, Taiwan, Japan, Korea, and the U.S. Beyond the conventional bibliographical and textual studies practice, I included the details of each copy I found by examining and comparing all the accent copies for scholars. Of course, there might be some missing information and mistakes, but I hope that it becomes a basis to reconstruct the textual history, not according to a hierarchy of the original and the secondary, but according to the process of textual evolution, highlighting the text as a fluid, collective, and social process beyond what conventional bibliographic and textual studies practice dictates. In the end, I hope to suggest that the history of book, literary criticism, and bibliographical and textual studies need to be integrated. Despite their overlapping interest, the focus of each of these disciplines has often made the fields more distant, such as the history book on the factual details of book production and circulation, literary criticism on the aesthetic interpretations of textual meaning, and Banban Xue on the search for the original and definitive editions. The integration of these previously separate fields helps us to reconstruct a more precise picture of textual production, circulation, and reception in their own historical conditions. Thank you very much. I mean, the appendix certainly illustrates exactly the whole process and the fluidity and the instability of text production and book printing. So our final question and usual one at the New Books Network is if you can tell us a bit on what you are working on now. After exploring now the publishing practices of 17th century China, what is your current research project? So I'm working on two projects now which is the development of the threads that emerged during writing this book. The first is the history of authorship. The author has been such a central yet banner topic in literary studies. But my research in the 17th century clearly indicates that authorship was a contested notion in relationship with the rapidly expanding market. Particularly, I'm interested in how authors claimed and exercised 
their authorial rights in the market where fakes, forgeries, and counterfeits abounded. When authorship was increasingly infringed upon and exploited, how did the authors lay claim to their authorship? On what basis could they defend and redefine their authenticity, authority, and authorial property? Another project I'm working on is the history of making and transmitting knowledge in Joseon Korea. My research on the Joseon Korean reception of Zhang Chao's books made me realize that the meaning of a late Joseon text could not be fully explained without consideration of its mediated reference to Chinese literary precedents. I'm interested in how intertextual referentiality embedded in the text proper as well as extratextual materiality provide a new framework for comparative Sino-Korean literary studies, particularly bringing to light a general pattern of transnational textual and material interaction that enabled the vibrant Sinographic sphere in the early modern period. Wow, thank you for sharing with us. I, these two very fascinating research projects, I would be looking forward to reading your output, I hope, very soon. So, Su Yong Song, thank you very, very much for this interview. I really learned a lot from reading your book and discussing it with you. And definitely my ideas on the notions of book, author, and publishing have acquired some novel dimensions and ideas for creativity. And thank you also to you listeners for listening. And I highly recommend to you to read Su Yong Song's book, Writing for Print, Publishing and the Making of Textual Authority in Late Imperial China, published in 2018 by Harvard University Press. Once again, thank you, Su Yong Song. Thank you so much, Aliki, for having me.